I'm going to tell you a few stories to start off. All true, all real people, and I'm going to use their real names because they're public figures. Uh, a man named Beckett who lived out in California uh, was high and mighty in the world of Hollywood, very high in the world of set design, knew a lot of the Hollywood elite, was able to tell stories about hanging out with Drew Barrymore at her pool, like that kind of person who knew all the people in Hollywood and lived the good life. Uh, also had several boyfriends that he bounced around between. He lived that lifestyle as well. Uh, until one day he was at a coffee shop and the, the guys at the table next to him all had the same book open and they were, seemed to be reading and studying that book. And so he got curious and he asked them, what are you guys doing? Uh, they said, oh, we're doing Bible study. We go to church together. So he says, uh, that may be curious, and so I, I just asked, uh, well, what, is, uh, what, is your Bi- what does your church teach about being gay? What does the Bible say about being gay? Uh, and they said, well, the Bible teaches that homosexual activity is, is sin. Uh, and he looks back and says, you know, I thought I would be offended, but actually I, I really appreciated that they didn't skirt around it. They just gave me an honest, kind, direct answer. And so he appreciated that enough that he wound up going to church. And he says, you know, I was always interested in Jesus. I really kind of wanted to go back to God. He said, but I knew that because I was gay, that wasn't an option for me. It seemed like it wasn't something I could do. He didn't receive people like me. Uh, But he went and he sat anyway and he heard the gospel preached. He heard of repentance of sin and the death of Christ to pay for sin. And he believed the gospel and was saved. And he left the homosexual lifestyle Uh, Didn't have to leave the community because unfortunately the homosexual community kicked him out for his new faith. Uh, And he says today, my desires have not changed, but I have something so much better in Jesus. And so I'm happier than I have ever been. So there's one story. There's another woman whose name is Jackie. Uh, She was raised uh, in a house mostly with her mom, and her dad was pretty distant and in and out. And a lot of times when you're raised with a dad who isn't a very good dad, you develop kind of a a low view of men because, you know, the one man in your life wasn't very good. And so she had a pretty low view of of men uh, and then noticed herself as she was growing older in in adolescence that her friends were attracted to boys, but she was attracted to girls. She began living that lifestyle. Uh, And then through a course of events, she came to Christ as well. And the way she describes it is, I realized that he wasn't first and foremost calling me to to a lifestyle or a label. He was calling me to a holy life. But so much more than that, he was calling me to him. I needed to go to Jesus and then let the other things fall into place. And so she ran to Jesus Christ Sometime later, worked up the courage to end her relationship with her girlfriend. Uh, and then, in a healthy church, reading the Bible, developed a, a good view of what manhood is and began to appreciate a good and godly man. And then, strangely, found herself attracted to one. And then they started dating, and then they got married. And today, I believe she's still married, and of all things, is a Christian hip-hop artist who's making records that are pretty good. I've listened to them. Uh, Two more stories. A woman named Rosaria, also I think out in California, she's at Syracuse University, wherever that was. Uh, She was not only an active lesbian, but uh, was a gay rights activist. 
Uh, one of the big architects in the movement to get some of those policies instituted in universities that later was adapted into U.S. law. Uh, one of the uh, premier professors of what's called queer theory, if you've ever heard of that, considered it her mission to do good in the world, to tear down the conservative Christian ruling class, as she thought of it, and institute queer theory into the world. And then one day happened to find herself at the kitchen table of a Presbyterian pastor and his wife. And they talked for a while about what they believed and had open conversation and didn't get anywhere. And then she still found herself back at the table again. He invited her back and they still didn't get anywhere. And over the course of a few years and scores of meals at this pastor and his wife's table, uh, eventually she came to Christ. Uh, And she said the big thing for her was reading the book of Acts And seeing Jesus appear to Paul and say, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, right? Paul had previously persecuted the church. He said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And she said, I realized that it was him that I hated. It was him that I was persecuting. It wasn't those conservative Christian bad guys. It was him. And so she repented first of hating him and came to to love him. She too, like Jackie, but unlike Beckett, found her desires to change over time. Uh, She eventually married a pastor and is today uh, a pastor's wife. She left the tenured teaching position and is living a very different life today. One last story. This is a man named Sam, and he grew up across the pond, I believe, in England, uh, at least judging by his accent when I hear him talk. Uh, And he, like uh, the others, in his adolescence, realized that his friends were attracted to girls and were talking inappropriately about girls, but he was attracted to the boys, and he began to live the lifestyle that corresponded with that. And sometime he came to Christ and is a very eloquent speaker, and so he actually became an apologist to someone who speaks in defense of the Christian faith. He spoke for Ravi Zacharias Ministries for a while, uh, was one of the premier voices that eventually confronted Ravi and his sin later in life and was able to expose him in some ways. And today, he says, my desires have not changed. I just live a single celibate life, and I just don't gratify my desires because I love Jesus more. And he is actually a pastor right now in Nashville, Tennessee, proclaiming the same gospel I proclaim and much the same doctrine, although not exactly the same as we proclaim. Now, why would I start off with four long stories like that, right, when every minute matters? Because in the arguments that the world is having about things like so-called gay marriage and human sexuality, there is a group that consistently gets left out. And that is people who know that the Bible says that sex is a gift from God reserved for husband and wife. They're aware that it says that. They're aware that Jesus teaches that. They are attracted themselves to people of the same gender as them, but they are still interested in coming and following Jesus Christ. The world doesn't have a grid for people like that. And at our worst, the church doesn't have a grid for people like that either. And so what I want to do today is dedicate this whole sermon to people in that very situation. People who are attracted to others of the same gender, but are still willing and interested to come to him and want to know, will he receive me? What will he call of me if I come to him? And is there a place in the church for me? These tend to be the big three hurdles for people in that situation. And I pray that what the Spirit shows you this morning is that the door is wide open for you to come into the kingdom of God 
And I hope I can show you some of what it looks like to go through that door and what awaits you on the other side. What would he call of you if you were to come to him? Jesus Christ has died a sinner's death to pay for the sins of his people. And he rose from the dead to conquer death and give eternal life, resurrection from the dead, to his people. And he is now on the throne in heaven, ruling the universe, giving both good and bad for the good of his people forever. And he will one day come and resurrect from the dead his people. He will judge those who hate him forever, and he will receive his own into his presence forever. That's the good news of the gospel, and the very good news is that he holds in his open hand anyone who would come to him trusting him, saying, I believe your blood is enough to pay for my sins as great as they are. I believe your resurrection is enough to guarantee my resurrection from the dead, as dead as I will one day be. With trust and faith in him, anyone who comes can be part of his people. In fact, if you are crying out for forgiveness in your heart, And you're willing to look to him with that kind of faith, with confidence that he will receive you, you already have faith in him. You are already acting as one of his people. I don't even have to call you through the door if you trust him like that already because you've already come through the door. And so what I call you to before we even begin is through faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting him to forgive your sins, come through the door. You do that and you're in, you're in the kingdom. And so the question I want to ask for the rest of this morning is, okay, now that I'm in, what is this place like? What is it like to follow Jesus? What's he going to call from me? And how could it be possible for me to go through my whole life and not gratify these desires? Is he really going to call that of me? And how would he make it possible? The text we're going to look at today is written to Christians And it speaks of the inside-out change that the Lord works in our lives. This is a change that he does, but we cooperate with it. He changes our hearts to love him and not love sin anymore. Uh, He teaches us truth in our minds that renews our minds. He gives us a new identity in him and a new people that are his people. And he gives us the power to say no to our desires He does all these things inside of us, and then out of us comes holiness. Then we walk in the truth because he has changed us on the inside. What does that look like, and what does it look like for us to cooperate with that? That's what we're looking at today. Let's read together Ephesians 4. We're going to read verses 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. These are the words of the Lord. 
These words speak against a deep misconception for those who are coming from a homosexual lifestyle into the kingdom of God. And if I could sum up what I want to say from them, it's that the Lord is not calling you to go from being gay to being straight. He is calling you to turn from loving sin to loving him. And that is no different from what he calls of everyone else to come, who comes to him. No matter what your desires are, we all desire sin. And he calls us to put that off and put on a new life that he gives to us. So we're going to go through this morning three internal changes that the Lord works in us and he calls us to cooperate with, and we'll go through our part in each of those internal changes. Then those internal changes lead to one external change, which we'll go through after that. And then last, I want to answer the question, if I follow him, is there a place for me in his kingdom? Let's look first at the three internal changes that the Lord calls from us in this passage as we come to him. The first, renew your mind with Jesus' truth. Renew your mind with Jesus' truth. We see this in verses 17, 18, 21, and 23. Verse 17 said that the way the Gentiles walk, that is the way that we all used to walk, I believe all of us in this room were Gentiles and not Jews, was in the futility of our minds. So our mind had some futility in it. And it goes on in verse 18, darkened in their understanding so there's a, there's a darkness in the understanding there. We're turning from that. We're being renewed. And 21 and 23 call us of that. 20, 21 later in it's calling us to, we are taught in him and the truth is in Jesus. And then 23 saying, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So you add all that up and our minds were once darkened, right? We did bad things in part because we believed lies. And there's truth in Jesus Christ. And so as Christians, we're called to sit under him, absorb his truth, learn his truth, and rebuild our whole system of truth. So what we see there is that seeking our body's desires darkens our minds. But seeking Jesus' truth restores our minds. Well, how did that work, you might ask? How did seeking my body's desires distort my mind? Well, what we have done is all of us have sought the deep desires of our hearts and built a belief system that is most convenient to those desires, a belief system that we can hold and feel good about getting the things that we want. In our culture today, this has become what you might call a social contagion. There is an entire worldview built around my heart wants this, and I want to get it and not feel bad about it. And so we have whole mantras and beliefs that we would say, follow your heart, and love is love, and this is who I am, and these are my people, and all the kinds of things that we would say that would make us feel like, yeah, it's okay for me to go and do the things that I want. The book of Romans says this in a more robust way, you might say. Romans 1 is a hard passage for people coming out of a homosexual life to read because it spends significant time describing that lifestyle. 
but essentially what it says is that we were all made to worship God and we can see his glory in creation. We've got enough to know that the God who made this is worthy of our worship. But we want to chase other things, idols, immorality, other things. And so as we do that, the Lord hands us over to the thinking that we want and our minds get darkened. And then we start to do all manner of wrong and wicked things. And he does list homosexual activity among that, among a whole bunch of others. He details it more than the others. Then he goes through the gospel message, which I gave you a little bit ago. And then in chapter 12, he says, Therefore, I urge you, by the mercies of God, so because of the gospel, you've received mercy, uh, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, meaning live in your body, handle your body in a holy way. And then he says, be transformed by the renewal of, of your mind. So, so the two are linked, like the actions that we're doing and the lies we have bought into, they're linked, and they're both called to be renewed. We're called to renew our minds in the truth, because then it becomes less plausible in our minds to do some of the things that we used to do. So ground level, what that means is it is going to be very hard to give up the lifestyle if you don't give up the ideology that's been taught to you. If you cling to love is love, and you cling to follow your heart, and you cling to it's my body, I can do what I want to with it. If you cling to the lies of the world, you'll find it next to impossible then to walk in the ways of Jesus. Now, you must be transformed in the renewal of your mind, learning truth from Jesus in order to walk in truth. So how you do that is by immersing yourself in his word. I wonder how much through your life you've immersed yourself in the world's teachings, and maybe that's why you believe it, because you're hearing it from social media, you're hearing it from music, you're hearing it from movies, you're hearing it from your friends. Well, what if instead you spent time every day learning his word, immersed in it? What if you found good biblical preaching and you sat under it and you learned the truth? This is what Psalm 1 teaches. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And all his law, he meditates day and night. His law was his word at that point, the books that had been written. So blessed is that one who has got the book open and is learning from the spirit-breathed words of Jesus in this book. Learning truth rebuilding the morals of right and wrong, rebuilding what is true out there and what, it, what God is like and our whole picture of truth and beauty. If we do that, our minds will be renewed and we're partway there to having the power then to live that holy life. So there's the first change that we're called to be part of, but the Lord works in us. Renew your mind in Jesus' truth. Second, Receive a new identity in Jesus. Receive a new identity in Jesus. We see this in verses 22 and 24. The first of which really plainly tells us to put off the old self. And the second one, 24, says to put on the new self. Right? The old self belonged to our old way of life. So it wasn't just a lifestyle. It was an identity. Put the whole thing off. 
And the new self, being conformed to the image of Christ, more like him, more truly righteous, more truly holy, putting on that. So it isn't just leave one lifestyle and live another lifestyle. It's leave an identity and put on a new identity. It means going from saying these desires are who I am, right? That's one of the lies of the world that who you want to go to bed with somehow determines your core identity. So from these desires are who I am to Jesus Christ determines who I am. I am found in in him. This also means leaving group identities that don't honor him. Sometimes we gather around things that don't honor him. It, It means no longer saying these people are my people, but now saying God's people are my people. And using words like my people to refer to the church because he's called us, called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has made a people, a new people, out of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And so from all of the groups out there, he says, I make a new people. And I call people from all the groups into my group. And now you're part of my group. So Peter can say things like, we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own choosing. So it's not just individual identity, but even group identity saying, this church, these people are my people. That means then, because groups have their cultural expressions, uh, that means trading the cultural expressions of the LGBT group for the cultural expressions of the church that are given to us by God. That means trading the, the rainbow flag for baptism says, these people are my people, this God is my God. It means trading the the love is love bumper sticker for the Lord's Supper that we're going to take that says, these people are my people, we have meals together. There was a day when the word gay just meant, this is what I desire, right? I'm I'm a man who desires other men or I'm a woman who desires other women. It is today much more than that. It's a full fledged ideology to tell someone that you're gay means Not only I desire this, but I live the lifestyle. It's my identity. I'm part of that group and part of those people. And so because it is a word that defines identity today, I would even go so far as to say it means trading the word gay for the word Christian. Because this isn't who I am anymore, right? Maybe it's a desire that sticks with you for the rest of your life, but it's not your identity anymore. No, now the identity is Christian. I belong to Christ Jesus, and these people are my people. What that means concretely, you might be thinking, okay, well, those people are still my friends. Like, what, what do I do? Uh, well, it means, I, I think it means keep all the friendships that you can, right? If anyone in that community is willing to still be your friend, now you're an ambassador of Christ to them, and you can bring the gospel to them. So keep those friendships if you can. In reality, it means that those friends or even that whole community may reject you for your faith, and so be ready for that. But the ones who will continue to talk to you, and I pray that that's all of them, maintain the relationship, but now you're doing it across the aisle, right? Now you're a representative of Christ into that community and to those people. 
So maintain the relationships if you can. Make your allegiance to Jesus clear. And as sorrowful it is to say, be ready to be rejected if they reject you. Okay, third change. Rule over your desires. We see this in verse 19 and in verse 22. Verse 19 says that who we were, that's they, have become callous and, these are the key words, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So it's not just that they desired sensuality and had greed in our hearts, but we actually gave ourselves up to do that. In the modern words, we followed our heart. We said, I'm going to give my body what it wants. We, we surrendered to these desires. And then in verse 22, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and then the part for this point, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So we learn a few things from that. One is that the desires of our hearts are deceitful, and following them makes us callous. You see how it said corrupt through deceitful desires? This is because our bodies are continually desiring things that would absolutely destroy us. Our hearts are lying to us. I'll give you an example. Most of us have a kind of relationship with food where this would work. Put before yourself a a plate of, of carrots and a plate of either your favorite kind of cookies, your favorite kind of ice cream, like a whole bucket of it. Okay, now... Ask your body. I mean, just, just follow your heart. Which one should you eat? What's your body telling you? Right? Right? Yeah, you're lying. <laughs> right? Because our hearts lie to us. Right? The body says, those carrots don't feel like they would be very good for me. Uh, and then says, this tub of ice cream, that's, that's what my body needs. Right? Well, because our desires are deceitful. Our bodies are constantly desiring the thing that they should not be desiring. That's not just true for food. That's true for all of life. How often has your body burned in anger and wanted to erupt at another person? What would happen if you followed your heart in that moment? It would blow up at somebody that you love. Those of you that are married and love your spouse, how often has your body or your heart been drawn away from your spouse and towards someone else, even at a glance? Why would our heart do that? We'd be so much happier if our hearts were as as monogamous as our covenants were. But our hearts keep lying to us. Our bodies desire things they should not desire. Key thing here, your desires are deceitful. You cannot afford to follow your heart. You will wreck your life if you follow your heart. And so we take those deceitful desires and we recognize those words in the scripture that say as we follow them, we become callous. If you keep doing what your body and your heart wants, you'll become a callous person. You won't care about other people. You won't care about morals anymore because I just got to have more of what I want. So what we're called to do here in the scriptures is to no longer surrender ourselves to those desires, to 
essentially to eat the carrots even though our bodies don't want to, right? To do the thing we should do even though our bodies don't want to. In simple terms, he's calling us to tell our desires no. He's calling us to self-control. This is what the scriptures call us to in Galatians chapter 5. Right? It puts the spirit and the flesh against each other. And if you are a Christian, your body is still desiring the wrong thing, but you've got the spirit of God in you desiring the right thing. And so there's a little conflict going on in there. And he's saying, don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Do what the spirit calls you to do. He wrote these words, follow the wor- rules that you were given in this word. We walk in the spirit when we follow God's ways and listen to him. We walk in the flesh when we do whatever our bodies want to do. This is why Jesus says, anyone who follows me must pick up his cross daily and, and follow me. Well, often wonder, what does that mean? Like, I, I have to be crucified to follow Jesus? What, what does that mean? Well, Paul makes that a little clearer in his writings. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh along with its passions and desires. So you're not crucifying yourself, you're crucifying those desires in your body to do wrong and immoral things. This is a really important image because it teaches us how sin and temptation work. Uh, When, now this is a violent and bloody image, you'll have to bear with me, but it's a biblical one, so I'm willing to use it. Crucifixion is a gruesome death. And one of the unique things about it is that the person crucified is not actively killed Instead, their blood is let out, and then they're given no food or water, and they exhaust themselves walking up a hill with a very heavy beam, and then they're just kind of hung out with their arms like this, cut off from air because you can't breathe very deeply when you're hanging like that, not enough blood to sustain you, not given any water, not giving any food, and they're just left up there to, to expire, right? So when Paul says we have crucified the flesh, that means it's not dead yet, right? It's still, still up there. Now, when a person is crucified, at first they have all of their energy and they will thrash and rail against it and fight the guards and scream insults at them with all they've got. They're going to resist what's happening to them. But four hours later, after being hung up there, they're out of energy And so they're being exhausted, and so they're no longer hurling the insults. They're no longer wrestling to try to get down because they're weak now. And this is something of what Paul is getting at when he says we have crucified. We've not yet killed, but we have crucified the flesh. What have we done? We have deprived it of all of its needs so that it, though it thrashed at us first when we told it no, now it's it's weaker. And that is how sinful desires work in our heart. When you first try to quit, well, I'll use an analogy first. Any of you try to quit smoking? When you first try, it thrashes and rails at you. But the more you tell yourself no, the weaker the desire gets. When a person tries to quit pornography... At first, it just thrashes against them so much temptation and intense desire. But if they're able to stay the course and not satisfy those desires at all, two weeks later, the desire is quite weaker. And then a year later, it's even weaker. 
And then two decades go by, and they're saying, I can't even remember the last time I was tempted. I stay away from the stuff because I know it'll happen if I even smell it, but I can't remember the last time that I was tempted. Our sinful desires work in this way. If we starve them, they may thrash at first, but then they get weaker. If we feed them, they get stronger. And so we must crucify the flesh. We must starve it. We must cut it off of all of its desires. Key idea here is if you want to see those temptations get weaker and weaker, what you have to do is starve them. That's important because it answers a question that people coming from a homosexual life often ask, and that's, should I expect these desires to change? And if you're thinking of, you know, from women to men or from men to women, there's no telling. Everybody's story is different. Don't expect any one thing or another. But very importantly, if you will refuse to gratify those desires, they may thrash at first, but they will get weaker in time. And this is part of what the Lord is calling us to do, to to deny those desires, to not be ruled by them, to no longer follow our heart, but instead to walk in the Spirit. So that is the third inward change we're called of. Now, if you do all that, if your mind is renewed over time in Jesus' truth, you receive that identity that he gives you as, as his You receive his people as your people, and you rule over your desires instead of letting them rule you. I wonder if you're starting to taste how living a life not gratifying same-sex desires is plausible. You can do that if the Lord changes you from the inside. Now, if you don't embrace the Lord's change in your life, it's going to be very, very difficult. It'll probably still be difficult anyway. But if we do those things, if we work along with the Lord as he changes us, then we can do the external change. And the external change is simply walk in Jesus' ways. He calls us to walk in his ways. We see that in verse 17 and in verse 24. First verse, 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So that old walk, that old way of life, we don't do that anymore. And then the last one, 24, and we put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we're no longer walking the way we used to walk. Now we walk in true righteousness and holiness. What does that mean practically? Uh, Maybe most pointedly, it means to not gratify any same-sex desire in any way. So not just not sinning with another person, but also not looking at images that might get that desire flamed up. Uh, Also not fantasizing or pleasuring oneself, in no way gratifying those desires. It means in most cases, to well, in all cases, to be ready to live a single celibate life. Because the Lord may not change your desires, and if he doesn't, we need to be ready to live in holiness and singleness. Uh, Lest you think that's too heavy of a calling, that's actually what I call of everybody in this room. Uh, The single people in this room may not be given spouses. You need to be ready to walk in single celibacy. 
And the married among us could, in a moment of tragedy, lose our spouses in any moment, and so we all need to be ready to live a single and celibate life. That may not be God's plan for you, but it may be God's plan for you. So that means then, ready and willing to live in holiness with no gratification of those desires. Now, if you do that, I don't want to overstate the case here, but as far as the lost people in your life, it will blow people's minds. Like, there's not a grid in most people in the world in their minds for a person who lives single, who does not have sex at all, and is happy in Christ. If you live like that, like Sam and Beckett, the two guys I talked about earlier, are living, that will get their attention. That, that will show them that this grid they've built for the world doesn't really work. That there's a better way to live. That will show them that there is something more to human life than sexual expression. Uh, that will show them that it is possible to live without sex. And it is. In short, you will be showing them how valuable Jesus Christ is. And he will use you in their lives. A few other practical things it means. Uh, it means not marrying someone that you aren't attracted to, even if that's a consensual marriage, right? Uh, some will try to enter into what I might call a half marriage, right? We'll join our lives. We may have kids together, but neither of us are attracted to each other, and we're just going to try to kind of put the front on. Uh, as a pastor who has counseled people, let me tell you, if you marry someone you're not attracted to, you will hurt that person. Don't, don't do that. Attraction is part of the deal and part of what your spouse needs from you. So if the Lord doesn't change your desires, stay away from marriage. If he does change your desires and the timing is right and everything is right, then enter into marriage and enjoy it. So there's the internal and the external change. We, we receive his truth. We receive the identity he gives us. We say no to our desires. And in that, we find real strength to walk in Christian holiness. Let me close by answering another question people coming from that life ask, and that is, is there a place in the church for me? Right? There's often a lot of doubt in, in the hearts of people who are coming like this. The short answer I want to give you before we look at it in the scriptures is there is a place for you if you will turn from sin and trust Jesus. And that is true of you and the people next to you, right? Everyone must turn from sin and trust Jesus, and there's a place for you here. Let me show you that really pointedly in 1 Corinthians 6. If you've got a Bible open, let's turn there. 1 Corinthians 6, we're going to start in verse 9. Now, the line that is drawn here is for all of us, if we insist on continuing in sin, there's not a place in the kingdom for us. If we will turn from our sin, there is a place in the kingdom. I'll show you the first half of that first. We'll start in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So you see that if we, if we insist on continuing to sin, there is not a place in the kingdom, right? We will not inherit the kingdom. He goes into detail. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually moral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, and he's explicit here, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, those are all present tense verbs. So that means people who are still doing these things, right? Refuse to turn from them, but continue doing them. But the next sentence is just incredible. Verse 11, and such were some of you. Do you catch the logic there? There were former thieves in the Corinthian church. And there were former revilers in the Corinthian church. And there were former adulterers in the Corinthian church. And there were former homosexuals in the Corinthian church. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So if you want to ask, is there a place for me in the church? The answer is that there has been for 2,000 years. You will not be the first one to come. And God willing, you won't be the last one either. So there's the call. The door's wide open. I've done all I can to show you how to walk through it and what's on the other side. My call really simply, come to Jesus Christ and let these words be true of you. Such were some of you. Let's pray.